Again, good morning and, and welcome. My name is Nathan. I'm the campus pastor here at the Olathe campus. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for uh, carving out this time to gather together uh, as we continue to look at this old prayer book, uh, the Psalms. Let me, let me pray for us as we uh, enter into this time together. God, we, uh, we need for you to speak. God, we, for many of us, that's why we're here. And even if that's not why we're here, God, we'd sure love it if that's what happened. If we could hear your voice from your words, even these words written so long ago. God, I pray that we would be a people who respond to your words and that you would do your work of changing us, of doing that in my life, my family's life, and the lives of those who are here this morning. So begin that work, we pray in Christ's name. Well, we all pray, don't we? I mean, at least most of us. We, we talked about that a little bit last week. We may not pray like we should or as often as we should or whatever, right? But it's, prayer is a nearly universal phenomenon, isn't it? I mean, study, studies have been done. It doesn't matter where you live, what culture, what time period, what religion you are, even the non-religious do it. Almost everybody prays. And there's probably a, a lot that could be said about that, right? I mean, we could look at it from a philosophical, you know, angle and metaphysics and all. We could look at it from a theological angle and, and what it says about us. I mean, th- th- something strange, right? This innate desire within us to connect with someone outside of ourselves, someone bigger, something or someone, right? That's out, that's out there. We all, we all do it. It says a lot about who we are. But if I were to boil it down to one simple reason, right? Just let's get as basic, as practical as possible. Why do we pray? It's because sometimes life stinks, right? And we just hope that there's someone out there somewhere who cares enough to do something about it. Nothing motivates us to pray like trouble. I mean, even, even Jim Gaffigan prays. Let's, let's watch. Some people think it's religious. They're like, yeah, but those kids for religious reasons. That's not how it works. If anything, you have four or five kids, and then you become religious. Because <laughs> once you lose a kid at the mall, you know, atheist or not, you start talking to God right away. <laughs> hey, God, I know I haven't talked in a while, probably since finals in high school. Anyway, if you could help me find my son, I promise I'll change my life. I'll stop going to Wendy's. Oh, there he is. Never mind, God. <laughs> Well, we're off to Wendy's. Do, 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 do. Talk to you when I get cancer. Do, 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 do. Because that's how it works, right? We really only reach out when we have a crisis. That's got to be annoying for God. He's got to be like, well, well, well. Someone gets the big C and they turn into Billy Graham all of a sudden. I seem to remember when you were in college, I didn't exist. But now you're Chatty Cathy. A joke that combines cancer and religion. Always a crowd pleaser. Oh, I love Jim Gaffigan. Um, but I think we can all relate to that, right? I mean, maybe not as, as ridiculous as, as all of that, but I mean, you've been there, haven't you? Uh, trouble is, when we're in that situation, it's not nearly as funny as that, is it? I mean, not even close, right? When the doctor calls you back to his office... Or your kid's not home, it's past curfew, and you can't get a hold of them on their cell phone, you don't know what's going on. You come into work, and you find a pink slip sitting on your desk. You don't have to believe in God in those moments to want to start praying, right? 
You've been there. I've been there. And, and maybe in those moments when you do, right, when you hit the wall or the crisis comes and you feel it deep within and you, and you do, you begin to cry out to God because it comes so naturally in those moments of, of deep and dark pain. And maybe you just imagine God up there in heaven going, you know, well, 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 right? Finally, now you come to me, right? Is that what God is doing? Is that what it, I mean, that's just kind of what it feels like, right? That's what the pain that we feel in those moments. And so we take our desperation to God and we quickly add guilt to it, right? Because we, we feel that in those moments. I mean, religion can be the best, can't it, sometimes? And maybe, maybe you're even thinking, but Nathan, didn't just last week, right? In Psalm 1 and 2, didn't last week we just say that when we pray, we ought to begin with God, not with ourselves, right? With, with who he is and what he said, not with our endless lists of requests. Well, yeah, we, we did say that, that's, that's what Psalm 1 and 2 is about. And yet when you get to Psalm 3, we learn another essential component to, to reaching out in communion with this, this God. That really, if you want to learn how to pray, ask for trouble. And, and I realize none of us are actually going to do that, right? I think we're, of course not. But nothing motivates us to pray like trouble. And that's okay. Most prayer begins with trouble. In fact, even, even look at it like this. How, do, how does a child, a baby, learn how to talk, how to communicate? By listening, yeah? And we talked about that last week, right? That we listen first to what God has, has spoken to us and that, that teaches us how to speak in response to him. But a child also learns by, by trying, Right? by trying to communicate, and that comes out as, as crying, as pain, as trouble, doesn't it? But that's, that's part of the learning process. Think of prayer similarly. A prayer is our, it's our first language. It's the language of groaning. It's the language of, of agony, of just trying to get something out there. It's when, it's when the fears overwhelm you. It's when the pain overtakes you. And you don't, even, you don't even know what you should say, and yet you find yourself crying out hoping that someone's listening. Eugene Peterson writes, prayer is the language of the people who are in trouble and know it and who believe or hope that God can get them out. And the reason we don't pray, at least not very much, and I'm just speaking from my own experience here, one of the big reasons for me is that I, most of the time I just feel like everything's okay. I, I assume that I've, I can juggle all the balls. I can keep all the, all the plates spinning. And, and, and if I do have a problem, then if there's anybody who could fix it, certainly it's going to be me, right? And so, I mean, why, why would I pray? Trouble is, it's the ones who don't realize how much trouble they're in that tend to be in the most trouble, right? We are in trouble. Whether that trouble is around us, I mean, just turn on the news, right? Or, or look around in your relationships, your circumstances, your workplace, your, your marriage, right? We are in trouble. It is around us. And look, look inside, right? It's there, too, that there's trouble that I cause. That, frankly, I am the problem in so often, my own, my own issues. You don't have to go looking for trouble. It'll come and find you. And yet we do have to learn how to pray. 
And as we've been studying the Psalms, right, we just stuttered last week, but as we're doing so, we're, we're doing so because we want to hear what these Psalms have and how they speak to us, but we're also doing so because we believe that the Psalms are designed to teach us how to connect with God. They're, they're this ancient prayer book written down so long ago that help us begin to understand this very weird and mysterious and hard thing called, called prayer. And here in Psalm chapter 3, we see two conditions of prayer uh, and one result. And let me just clarify real quick. By condition, I don't mean conditions for God, like to, to hear us or to accept us. I don't, I don't think God works that way. It's conditions that must be true in our heart before we'll even begin the conversation. It's some, something that's within us before we'll even actually come, come before him. So two conditions and, and one result. Uh, in Psalm 3, uh, if you have a Bible, turn there. Otherwise, we'll have it on the screen for you. But Psalm 3 uh, begins with a title. It says, A Psalm of David, When He Fled from Absalom His Son. Trouble. Now, every prayer comes out of a story, doesn't it? I mean, we, we know that from our experience, and, and that the same is, is true of Scripture. Every prayer begins with a story. We don't know the story behind every psalm, but this one we have this description. It was written down most likely by one of these editors over, over these, these centuries as these psalms were grouped together, that this, this is what happened. And so let me even kind of pick up, so a psalm of David when he, was, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Well, what is that, right? You say it's a story, but what is the story, right? Some of you, some of you know it, some of you don't. Uh, that's okay, but essentially David, um, David was the king in Israel's history, right? The focal point, the one who, who God had put on the throne. Frankly, is the one who Psalm 2 said is finally here to, to, to make the, the world a little bit better uh, for, God's, for God's people. So it's, about, it's about David. Uh, he also happened to write at least half of these 150 prayers found in the Psalms, and so he is skilled in the art of prayer. But what is so interesting to me about Psalm 3 uh, is that Psalm 3, I mean, it's the first prayer in the Psalms. So Psalm 1 and 2 aren't prayers. They're kind of instructions on how to pray, how to come to God. Um, and it's also the first Psalm that's attributed to David. But Psalm 3 is clearly written towards the end of David's life. That fascinates me, right? Because we had talked about this a little bit last week. You might remember uh, that the Psalms is an edited book. That means it doesn't take place chronologically. You're not reading Psalm 1 because it was written first and Psalm 2 because it was written second. That's not how it goes. The editors put it together in ways that help us connect best with God to understand. And so instead of starting with some of David's you know, great happy Psalms or even you know, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, or these other places, it starts here towards the end of David's life in a place of absolute trouble. I don't think it's an accident. This is an ugly situation for David. Not, not the poetry, but the context. I mean, you think, you think your family has issues, right? And swallow this. So this, the context here of the trouble that David feels with his son. I mean, it, it started in, in some ways when uh, David's son Amnon rapes David's daughter, Tamar. David's other son, Absalom, Murders Amnon, his own brother, as, as a result. And Absalom flees after the murder of his brother. Um, and tension begins to build between David and his son, Absalom. You can, you can imagine that, right? And so eventually, Absalom is just fed up, and he decides to come back to Jerusalem and, and basically says, you know what, Dad, uh, you're as good as dead, and I'm taking over. And a large number of David's people, his friends, his counselors, you know, his entire board or whatever you want to, they all, almost all of them go with Absalom. And civil war begins. 
And so the kingdom is, is shattered, right? David's own uh, nation, the, the people around him, all of it happens, this, this terrible coup. And we read about it in 2 Samuel. Let me just even read a few verses of, of the story here, what's happening. Um, and so it, it says in 2 Samuel 15 that a messenger came to David saying, this is what they said to David, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. That means they, they love Absalom now, not you, David. And David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape from us from Absalom, go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And David, he is in his 60s now. He's ruled for 30 years as the king. He's called in scripture the man after God's own heart, and yet he's cursed by his own people, hunted down like a dog, his wicked son on his throne. I mean, every promise God ever made to David at this point has got to feel like a lie. As hope evaporates in this furnace of pain, It's here that David prays. The first prayer recorded in the Psalms. And so even if you think back, Psalm 1 and 2, that's the gateway into a life of prayer, right? We said that's the beginning point. It tells us how. It tells us the framework that God speaks and God laughs. You can't pray unless you, you embrace the fact that God has spoken and that God, that God laughs, that God is in control, right? We talked about that last week. That's the entry point. And that makes Psalm 3 the first step on the path. Step one to prayer is being kicked in the face by life. Feeling the agony around you. God speaks, God laughs, and today life stinks. Because nothing motivates us to pray like trouble. Two conditions and one result. All right, let's, let's get into the psalm. Uh, condition number one is Helplessness. Helplessness. Every prayer begins with a very important assumption. I can't do it on my own. That's where it begins. Uh, in, in fact, you really can't pray, or maybe better, you, actually, you won't pray unless you realize how needy you actually are. Desperation, as much as we hate it, can be a beautiful thing. Look what, look what David shows us in verse 1. So David, at the beginning of the psalm, says, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. Many, many, many rising up against me. And rumor has it, I mean, you catch this? this? This is what everybody's saying about David. They're saying that not even God can save you, David. That's what, that's what it is. David, you are so far gone. You are such a has-been. You are so unwanted. Your kingdom has been so taken away from you that not even God can save you, right? I mean, Charles Spurgeon, the great old preacher, he writes about this verse. He says, if all the trials which come from heaven and all the temptations which ascend from hell and all the crosses which arise from the earth could be mixed and pressed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. It doesn't get any worse, any lower, than David beginning to wonder, hearing the rumors around him, not even God can save you. This is where prayer begins. Right here, you're out of options. The doctors, they've, just, they've given up. You've read every parenting book, every marriage book, 
Nothing seems to work. You've experimented with, with every antidepressant, right? And you, you just can't feel the way you, you want to feel. And at that point, you begin to wonder, can, can even God help me? Or is he, is he done? And then you pray. And of course you do now, right? And maybe that sounds wrong to you. I mean, if you've been a part of church for a while, I think, man, I mean, just, we only pray when we're in trouble. That's, what about pray without ceasing and, and all those other things? How do we reconcile? We only pray when we're in trouble. I love what Isaac Singer uh, wrote. He's a, a Nobel Prize winner. He says, I only pray when I am in trouble, but I am in trouble all the time, so I pray all the time. You see, we're always in trouble, you and me. It's just sometimes it takes really big trouble for us to actually realize it. Because most of the time I think I'm in control. I mean, if I'm, if I'm honest, right, I hold on to that illusion as carefully as I can and I think I, I'm in charge of my life, I'm making the right decisions, everything's going fine and I'm going I'm to keep it going that way and I think that I can do it, that I can muster up enough effort to make it happen and then something happens. And for some of you, you've been there. Right? Maybe you're, you are there right now. You, something has happened, and that illusion of control has, has quickly evaporated. And then we remember how helpless we really are. And maybe you're not at that point yet. I know some of you are, but maybe you're not there. You know, maybe a healthy exercise, I know for me, as I've been thinking through this this, this, this week, is just to even stop and ask myself, I mean, how many problems am I away from disaster? I mean, what would it take but before things just get so far gone, and how much control do I actually have in preventing those things? And again, not just, not just around us, but, but within us. Maybe ask yourself, how many bad decisions am I away from cataclysm, from ruining my, my family, my work? What would, it, what would it take? Or maybe even if you don't, you don't want to wrestle there, but like, what about death, Right? I mean, the, the great inevitability coming for, for all of us. It doesn't matter how healthy you try to be or how much concealer you wear. It's coming. We are helpless. At least David knew it. But you and I, we are in the most danger of all. Comfortably clueless. Confidently self-reliant. And I just, <laughs> enough said, right? I mean, that's, that's us, isn't it? Don't leave a flesh wound. I've had worse, right? Money, I mean, some of you are like looking at it. I have no idea what's going on right now. Um, that's your fault, okay? Um, just for the, but this, I, I mean, okay, I love, I love that movie. I love that scene. I mean, it's, it's but that, I, mean, I just, I feel like that's me. And somebody, like, I, I'm lying to myself, but I'm the only one deceived, right? It's only a scratch. I'm invincible. Of course I can protect this bridge with no legs and no arms, right? And so why would I pray? Now, I'm a pastor, so of course I pray. Can't get out of that one. Um, I do, but if you ever wonder, like, why do, why do my prayers just tend to fall flat? Why don't I pray? Why... Why do I get frustrated? Why do I get bored? It's often because we just don't think we need God's help. 
And so to be, to be truthful, I think for many of us, myself included, when we come to God, uh, we might like pay a little lip service, like, hey, God, it'd be great if you could help me. Um, but in the back, we're thinking, not that I really need your help, right? Um, and in fact, God, actually, if you need me to do something for you, I, I mean, that, that's kind of how it goes, isn't it? Uh, we, I want to be independent from God. I want to be able to carve out my own way. I want to be able to fix all of my own problems. And yet this, this guy, old Housby, he's an old theologian, um, Norway, he writes, as far as I can see, prayer has been ordained only for the helpless. Prayer and helplessness are inseparable. Only he who is helpless can truly pray. And so if your prayer life stinks, there's a good chance it's because you just think you can do it on your own. I mean, who are you trying to kid? They say, David, David writes, that not even, not even God can save me. But you, O oh Lord, David says. I, I'm helpless, David is saying, but God, you are not helpless. And so we say with this deposed king, with shame and death surrounding us, but you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. The reality is what David believes about God is more important than what he believes about his circumstances. What he believes about God is more important than what he believes about his enemies. More important than even what he believes about his own inner turmoil. David's not making light of his feelings, right? And we'll, we'll see that even as he cries out to God and continues in agony to do so, both here and in the Psalms that, that follow. And yet, David's theology trumps his feelings because he believes in this, this, this God. And so he says, God, you are my shield. Not, God, if you don't mind, would you be my shield, please? God, you are. You are the one who protects me. You're the one who keeps me safe. And, and God, you are my glory. And, you know, when I first read that, and I just I kind of passed it over, but, like, that's great. But if you think about it in the context, David's glory, all of it's been stripped away as king. Can you imagine the humiliation of being in power for 30 years and having it ripped away by your own son and all of your people, your, your biggest fans, spitting on you as you, on your way out. His glory is dead. But David says, no, 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 no. You, God, you, you are my, you're my reputation. You're the one who tells me who I am. Says, you're the lifter of my head, just meaning you're the one who gives me endurance and strength. No matter what happens, even if it all falls apart, even if my enemies do get the best of me, because David doesn't know at this point, right? Even, no matter what happens, nothing motivates us to pray like trouble. And helplessness is the first condition. Okay, condition number two. Uh, condition number two is honesty. Prayers don't have to be pretty. You don't have to have it all like perfectly figured out or even feel, frankly, in the mood, right? Look at verse four. David says, I cried aloud to the Lord. I cried, he cries out. Like, like a newborn, not sure where his next meal is going to come, come from. He cries out like a, a young child lost in the dark woods, just hoping that somebody maybe is out there who can, who can hear him. He, he cries out with his enemies and death surrounding him. And the Hebrew word here for aloud, it's also the word for thunder. Um, and so this, this isn't like some polite, um, uh, God, if you don't mind... Um, not really sure why David has a, a British accent. Um, <laughs> but for some reason, like this version of David, right? This, this one who's polite and, and I, don't, I don't, that's not what's going on, right? That's not what's happening here. This, 
This is a heart-wrenching, heart-pounding, fear-fueled, personal thunder of terror. He is afraid. Wait a second. Doesn't David have faith? Is that right? He's afraid? Of course he has faith. That's why he cries out. He believes that there's someone out there who will actually hear him and respond to him. But fear and faith, we think this sometimes. Now, if they're not mutually exclusive, oftentimes they go hand in hand very intimately together. I mean, at least David's honest. I mean, he, he's not afraid, right? Like anybody in this room not afraid about something? Are you kidding me? And yet so often when we pray, we feel like we've got to come with the perfect words and the perfect feel or, or you know, unafraid, easily trusting. You've got to feel the right things, say all the right things. And then when we get to that point, right, when we kind of fix ourselves up to that place, then maybe we'll pray. The trouble is we just almost never feel that way, do we? We, we don't have the right words. We're not poets like, like David, and yet even David simply just cries out. And so what happens if we feel like we have to sort of be the right way, say the right thing. What happens is we'll either avoid God altogether because we're just, it's not going to happen. Or we'll just fake it, right? And we put on this, this happy face and we, we try, to, try to hide. Essentially, you know, we pray as if we're not in, afraid, not in pain, as if life doesn't stink and we just want, want somebody to answer why, right? We, we pretend and we lie to God. Let me let you in on a little secret. He already knows how you feel. Why not tell him? I mean, that, that's, that's what relationship is. And yet instead, we, we hide. You know, you and I, we are expertly trained to hide, aren't we? We're so good at it. I feel like we come out of the womb learning how to put our best foot forward, don't we? Have the right face, say the right things. Every situation we find ourselves, we feel like the same thing has to be true with this, right? With, with God and with church. I even, you know, I think it's even heightened now by, by social media. And I'm not trying to like harp or anything and whatever, it's good, yada, 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 fine, fine. Uh, but, I mean, generally, if we're honest, the stuff that we tend to put up there, I mean, it's the very best edited version of ourself, right? It's happy me, right? It's me with my, my, my life together, Right? And so we continue to hide. We continue to, to put our, our best foot forward. We tend, tend, it's the highlights reel, and I, I am an expert at this, at hiding my weaknesses. But this is the one place on the planet that you don't have to hide. And certainly, I mean, before God and in his presence as you come to him in prayer, but I also mean here, right here, the church, this place. It's the one place you don't have to. And I realize for some of you, it's the one place you probably hide the most, right? For a lot of reasons. But that's not what this community is. That's, that's not this people that God has brought together. If anything, this is a community for the broken. This is, this is a community of, of, for, for the hurting, for, for people who are, are so messed up, who realize how deep their trouble is, that they actually admit that they need a savior that they can't do it on, them, on their own, that they need someone to, to reach in and rescue. That's, that's who this is. We don't have to hide from each other, and we certainly don't have to hide from God, and you will never pray, not really, not unless you stop pretending. David doesn't pretend. I mean, the Psalms don't fake it. Like if, you, if you've read the Psalms, I mean, if we learn anything in the Psalms as we look at the whole book, it's, it's that prayer is raw. It's unpolished. 
It is ugly, sometimes brutal. It, it contains both faith and fear and doubt and disappointment and anger and, and all of it, even while it trusts. I mean, I, I got to tell you, even, I mean, this is, I mentioned a little bit this last week, but this is one of my favorite things about the Christian story. One of the things that keeps me coming back to this book as opposed to the others, the other sort of scriptures or worldviews that exist out there, I, I, I'm convinced that every other worldview, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to build a straw man or, or even just be cruel to those who, who hold to these other things, but every other worldview, in my opinion, makes, makes light of suffering. It just doesn't quite take it serious enough for me. Not, not for what I feel. And so tend, other worldviews tend to go in, in one or of two directions. Either it's just God's judgment on you, and so get over it, right? You, you deserve it, you earned it, and so, you know, good luck with that. Uh, or, or it's that suffering is just entirely meaningless. So you don't even, we don't even have categories to be able to speak about it because that's just, that's just what it is, right? Um, they take light of, of suffering. In Christianity, our story, we don't get all the answers about suffering and pain that we want. Um, I think actually it's probably a good thing that we don't. Yet at the very least, we see a God who who doesn't make light of our pain. I mean, not only that, our, our God, not only does he invite us to come to him with whatever we're feeling, he gives us the language to do so. He gives us examples of what it looks like to cry out mad at him or disappointed in him or feeling like he's absolutely left us alone. He's given us the very words to say as we bring them to him. That's unique about our story, about our scriptures. And unless you're willing to get raw, You'll never pray. Not really. But David thunders aloud to the one who's bigger than his problems. And he cries out, right? I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. What David is saying there is, I may not be on my throne like I wish I was back in Jerusalem, but God is still on his. God's not left his holy hill. He's not left his place of authority. And so trouble all around us, right? Helpless but honest. That's the the two conditions of prayer. And then just one, one beautiful result here, rest. David prays, David trusts, and David sleeps. I got to tell you, I love how mundane that is. It's almost boring, anticlimactic, right? That's it, sleep. Like the one thing that you and I do every day, like that's, that's this huge moment for David in this, in this psalm. But the beginning of, of God's intervention in David's life, it's not to fix his problems, it's to give him the same gift that he gives to you and me every single night. And we forget the grace that that is, don't we? Look, look how David says it in verse 5. He says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. This is the gift of faith, the gift of, of prayer. In the, in the face of trouble, even before he's made a single request of God. I mean, you notice that, right? He hasn't asked God to do anything yet in this prayer. Even as he confesses his helplessness and his fear. I mean, he's literally surrounded by those who want to kill him. I mean, you and I, we've all had sleepless nights, right? If you haven't, you will. This should be one of those nights for David. He doesn't know if he's going to wake up. He doesn't know if his enemies are going to sneak in and come and and destroy him, even even while he sleeps. And the next morning, he's still surrounded. I mean, nothing, nothing has changed in his circumstances. Only that he's been in the presence of God and he has slept. I even love how it almost feels like he's surprised the next morning, right? I lay down and slept. I woke again, right? Who knew, right? He goes not knowing how it's going to end. G.K. Chesterton writes, the greatest act of faith 
a man can perform is the act that we perform every night. We abandon our identity. We turn our soul and body into chaos and old night. We uncreate ourselves as if at the end of the world. For all practical purposes, we become dead men and the sure and certain hope of a glorious resurrection. And David, he's done nothing to earn it. Like, like he hasn't just like, worked really hard to, to make himself feel safe enough to do this or, or to fix his, his problems or, or any, of, any of that. He has been given rest by a God who freely responds to those who respond to him in faith. That's, that's grace. And it's only now after a good night's sleep. It's after a good night's sleep, David says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. And trust often comes in the morning, doesn't it? After we've experienced God's rest. And so now, finally, David asks for something. Verse 7, arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. Friends, this is the cycle of prayer. We come helpless but honest, and that takes, that takes faith. And by grace, God gives us rest. Not that he always answers us the way we want to or even that our, our circumstances change. Often our problems remain. And yet something begins to change within me. So I want to I get practical here. And, and I mentioned last week, as we go through the series, I hope that there's practical points along the way for us to, to actually do some of this and to learn to do that together. So we said last week, coming out of the message, uh, a next step, take 10 minutes every day, uninterrupted, to pray. Um, hopefully you did that last week. Um, I hope it was meaningful. It's not easy, I know. And some of you, it's like it was awful. Um, We'll keep doing that, okay? We don't graduate from these things as, as we go. And, and for those of you who are too lame to actually try it or just plain forgot, uh, you get another chance, okay? So, so do this this week. Take 10 minutes every day uninterrupted to pray. Uh, but this week, in response to this, ask God to show you how desperate you really are. Ask him to show you your need, which is hard and frankly humiliating and sometimes a little bit terrifying because he, he might actually show you more than you want to see. But begin there. I mean, for me, this is, uh, this is one of the most valuable parts of my, my own personal routine of prayer. And I, I hesitate to share any of this because the last thing I want to communicate is that I'm, I'm the expert up here talking about this. Let me be honest. Prayer is hard for me. I don't, I don't always get it. I don't always feel anything. Sometimes it's just going through the motions. Sometimes it is nothing more than a root discipline in, in my life, and it's, it's hard. So I don't want to communicate that I've, I've got this figured out and come and figure it out with me. That, that's, I don't have it. And yet one thing that I know, I've learned that one of the most, most important things in my, my consistent rhythm of prayer so let me, let me even share what that looks like. Uh, I'm a morning person. I get here uh, to the office uh, 5.30 every morning. Um, and first thing I do, very first thing I do is make coffee because um, I'm not a monk, right? Uh, and that's, that might be the third condition necessary for prayer, actually, is coffee. Um, but I, that's how I begin my day. And I sit at my desk with my Bible open because I believe God speaks and he wants to speak to me through his word. And I sit there with my Bible open and I pray. And again, sometimes it's awkward, sometimes it's uncomfortable, sometimes it feels absolutely useless. But if nothing else, it reminds me every single day that I just can't do it on my own. If nothing else, it's an opportunity for me to be able to remind myself and be reminded by God that I just can't do it. I, I, I don't know how to be the man that God wants me to be. I don't, I don't know how to love my wife like I should or raise my kids like I should. Believe me, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what it, what it means to 
to, to love people, right? To, to be a pastor. I don't, understand, I don't know how to teach and, and to preach and to be able to come before God. And I hate to say it. I hate to say it to him even, right? I hate it. And I hate even more saying it to you, but to just start my day saying, I am helpless and I am afraid. God, would you, would you please show up? Would you do something? If nothing else, that's that reminder. That You begin to do that. Be convinced that will change you. Nothing motivates us like trouble. It's only then that we can say, as, as David does, as the psalm climaxes in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. And if you think about it, that's not just true of prayer. That's just true of the Christian life. I mean, if anything, right, the Christian life is one that says salvation doesn't belong to me. I can't do it on my own. I can't figure it out on my own. I can't save myself. Salvation belongs to God or no one. And I I know that I try, right? Um, I try to fix my my problems. I try to muster up enough of courage to do that. And maybe if I'm good enough, if I fake it enough, if I fool enough people, then then maybe God will also be fooled and it'll all be okay. And And then I get a glimpse of Jesus. See, yeah, salvation belongs to the Lord because what Jesus reminds me is that the only way that the God of the universe could rescue me, the only way is for him to come, for our God to enter into the world that he made, enter into his own story. He wrote himself in. He showed up, he became a man, he died, suffered a brutal death on a cross, suffering what I deserved. I mean, that's how much trouble I'm in. That's the mess that my life is. That's what it took, and yet he did it gladly. And he rose again to offer hope that the problems and the pain will not have the last word in our lives. I mean, if anything, Jesus shows me that God has already accomplished all the things that I could never possibly accomplish on my own. That he has done it for me. And so friends, we come helpless, and we come honest. Or we don't come at all. Yet he welcomes us with grace, with open arms, each one. For Jesus himself said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. God, we long for this rest. We long, not not just for sleep, not just for relaxation, God. We long to be at rest deep within we long for an end of the turmoil in our bodies and our relationships, God, the things that we feel so deeply. And so, God, I pray that we together would confess our helplessness before you. Even, even when we're tempted to believe that not even you can save us. God, I pray that we would come with honesty and that we would rejoice in you, Lord Jesus, for you are our shield. You are our glory. You are the lifter of our head. And so together we worship you and proclaim that you you own salvation. This is yours. This is your work in your world and in our lives. And so we trust in you.